Well, good evening. Take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 8. Verse 28. God's word says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It's the fourth time that we've come to consider this portion of Scripture here, and particularly uh, verse 28, which is just filled with tremendous uh, hope. We have been in the context looking at the assurance of our salvation for those who are in Christ, those who are no longer under God's condemnation, and we're looking at the work of the person of the Holy Spirit in our life, and we're looking at what I've titled the unquenchable love of God for us, right, and the guarantee of our salvation in Christ. We've divided this verse 28 into four parts, and we've in the past have looked at the certainty of our salvation, that's the end we know part, the extent, uh, all things, and then the recipients, those who love God and called according to his purpose. So this is the great promise. This is the great promise of God that again He works all things in our lives for uh, uh, our good in, in this life. And tonight we're going to go to the fourth point, which is the reason why. The reason why we're confident in the promises of God <coughs> regarding the fact that indeed, <coughs> excuse me, again, all things work out together for our good. I said it this morning, and I'm going to stop right here and say it again. But it's truth like this that we need to remember. It's truth like we're about to unfold tonight that we need to continually tell ourselves. Uh, in a world full of difficulties, and again, not listen to ourselves, because our emotions we cannot trust. God's word we can trust. God's word we can believe in. We can't believe in our emotions, because our emotions fail us. Uh, our, our emotions oftentimes get in the way of the truth. So we need to speak to ourselves the truth, God's divine truth, and then let that truth uh, uh, affect everything in our lives in every situation that we find ourselves in. So now the reason that we are confident in the fact that in, uh, in our life, all things in our life work out together for good, is found at the end of verse 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, and it is to those who are called according to his purpose. Now understanding that phrase according to his purpose is really the key to understanding the terms that are coming up in verses 29 through 30, terms such as foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. So understanding that phrase according to his purpose is the key to being able to enter into rest in your life uh, in spite of whatever might be happening in your life. Because God has a purpose. God has a plan. And in God's plan, he's working all things together for good for those who love God and again those who are called according to that purpose or his purpose. So all things are working together because of or in accordance with God's purpose and God's plan. So that's the confidence that we have as Christians, as believers, uh, again, living uh, life in a world of whatever life might bring us. God himself is directing us. God himself is directing us. Not only that, but God himself through the person, the Holy Spirit, who now dwells on us, who lives within us. Again, he is directing us according to this divine plan, this divine purpose. Uh, again, that's verse 27 with the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So that's the reason we have hope. That's the reason we have hope even if, quote-unquote, bad things happen to us. Because God has a plan. 
God has a purpose. Nothing, absolutely nothing in this world happens by accident or chance. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as luck or a haphazard result or the moving of blind chance. Those things don't exist. Everything that happens in this world happens by the predeterminate plan and foreknowledge of God himself, the will of God, according to his purpose. That word purpose is prothesis. It means to plan in advance. It describes an intelligent design which is uh, bent on being accomplished by the will of God. So when we start talking about God's plans, uh, we're talking about things that are certain to what? Succeed. We're talking about things that are certain to succeed. Things that will happen, things that will come to pass. Again, everything in God's plan is based upon his character, his nature. Our God who's perfect, our God who is all-powerful, our God who's all-knowing, our God who is sovereign, our God who is perfect in holiness. Therefore, we're confident to believe that everything that happens in this world and in our personal lives, for those who are believers, those who are Christians, is in keeping with that plan and purpose of God who is perfect, omniscient, omnipotent, and again, in absolute control. One who is without sin, without evil, one who is completely uh, all-loving. Therefore, we know that no matter what happens, no matter what we might see with our eyes, no matter what might happen to us, nothing can ever divert God's plan. Nothing can ever divert us from God's plan. Nothing can thwart God's divine purposes. In fact, Job, in Job chapter 42, verses 1 and 2, he says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, verse 2 of that chapter, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's a pretty helpful comment. The per- no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Right? Why, why can no purposes of God ever be thwarted? Because of the fact he is what? God. It's very simple, right? God's purposes can't be thwarted because God is God. Uh, hold a, a mark there and turn back to the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46, we'll pick it up in verse 8. And in the context, after speaking of the false gods of Babylon, Isaiah 48 verse, or Isaiah 46 verse 8, God says, uh, verse 8, God says this, remember this. Remember this and be assured, recall it to mind you transgressors, verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there's no other. I am God, there's no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Remember this, call it to mind, recall it to mind, you transgressors. So again, in the context, uh, the prophet is speaking, Isaiah is speaking to the Jews, those who had been previously instructed in the law. And yet they were in need of having the truth rekindled in their hearts, in their minds, because their unbelief had choked out the truth. Their unbelief had choked out the truth they already knew. That's why Isaiah repeats that. Remember. Remember. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, there's no other. I am God, there's no one like me. Now God had continually showed them, and he shows us through the entire Bible who he is. He's testified to his faithfulness numerous ways. He's shown the greatness of his perfect nature and being often. Remember, remember the former things long past, for I am God. I am God, there's no other. I am God, there's no one like me. So again, for us, the call is the same to not forget. 
to not forget the fact there's only one God who's good, perfect, and loving. He has no potential rivals, therefore there's no one like him. Right? None like him. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So again, who but God alone can declare the end from the beginning? Who but God alone can declare from ancient times things which have not been done? No one but God. And for that to happen, that individual God has to be sovereign. Right? He has to be all-powerful. He has to be omniscient, all-wise, all-knowing. My purpose, here it is, will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now, that's a repeated theme throughout the Old Testament. But because men are men, and we're like all other men, we're hard to be persuaded by the truth. So, again, the prophet just reminds them over and over again, bids them to remember. Right? Be reminded. Be mindful. Recall it to your mind. Recall it to your heart. Think about the truth. Not how you feel, but think about the truth. There's one God. No one opposes him. He does exactly what he wants to do, and whatever he does is perfect. And whatever he does is good and just. Whatever he does is correct, it's right, because that's who he is. And whatever happens to us in life is happening according to his will and according to his purpose. So that's the whole theme of the Bible. right? That's the whole theme of the Bible. God has a plan. God has a purpose. From the beginning to the end, from before it's happened, right? He's declaring the end from the beginning. God has a plan, and it's being worked out in history. It's being worked out in time. And God's purpose throughout history has to do with his glory. The terms glory in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Testament, kabod, and then New Testament is doxa. And the term glory is used for honor and praise due the one who is worthy, who has a worthy reputation, one who has worthy of, of glory because of his position, his power, and his riches. And, and glory, in the strictest sense, only belongs to God because there's no one like him. He alone is worthy. Uh, Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to graven images. God is a God of glory. Now, don't let me lose here. I'm, I'm going to run a little tangent, but you'll be okay. I want you to stop and consider the fact that God is not an idolater. God is not an idolater. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says this, God is central and supreme in his own affections. There are no rivals for supremacy of God's glory in his own heart. It's a worthy statement. God is central and supreme in his own affections. There are no rivals for the supremacy of God's glory in his own heart. So again, God is not an idolater, and the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. So since God is not an idolater, he doesn't disobey the first commandment. Therefore, with all of his being and all of his manifold perfection, God is most passionate about his glory, his own glory. Therefore, everything that he does in the universe, everything that he allows in the, the universe, as the sovereign creator God, as the, as the good, perfect, all-loving God, is done to bring him attention, to bring him glory. Right? It's done to bring him glory. It's bring, done to bring him honor and praise because, again, he alone is worthy to receive it. So God himself is the ultimate. God himself is the ultimate, and he's the ultimate object of existence. God is the central figure in both time and eternity. 
Therefore, God has a plan. And God is working out that plan through time in history. And it is for our good. All things work together for good. And it is for his glory. And that plan for his glory is to make himself known. To make himself known among men. To make himself known so that men might praise him and worship him and adore him and love him. Because he is God and that is right that men would thus do so. Now, our God is the creator, and because our God is the creator, that means he is what? Eternal. That means he's outside time. He is without beginning or end because he's the creator of all things, including time, which we're trapped by, but he's not. Psalm 91, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born, and you gave birth to the earth or to the world, and even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Therefore, everything that happens to us is based upon the eternal plan of our God, our God who is, again, good and loving, the one who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now, in our text that we're working ourselves through in Romans 8, we're speaking about the issue of salvation. We're speaking about the issue of salvation. We're speaking about the certainty that nothing can ever rip us from the grasp of our God, our Heavenly Father. Nothing can ever separate us from our love in Christ. Because our God is who he is. Our God is eternal. Our God has a plan. Our God has purpose. Again, for our good, for his glory. And again, that plan is eternal in nature. God has a plan that he decided, decreed, uh, purposed, uh, 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 for men, a way of salvation, a way to come back into reconciliation with him. And that plan, again, is from all eternity. This eternal God who has this plan, out, who lives outside of time, who exists out of, outside of time. Go, go to the New Testament. Go to 2 Timothy chapter, uh, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Second Timothy chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse uh, 9. The the last word in verse 8 is God. So that's who we're talking about here. Verse 9. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Right? God who saved us. So when we start talking about the issue of salvation, we're not talking about ourselves. We're just talking about something that God is doing. God has done. Talking about God. We're talking about the sovereign of the universe. We're talking about the great things that God has done for us. We don't save ourselves. We, we didn't even know that we needed salvation until God in his mercy through the gospel declared to us that fact that we're aliens separated under his judgment. We need reconciliation. We didn't even know that we needed salvation until God in his kindness told us we needed reconciliation and salvation. God who saved us. And again, when you start talking about salvation, you're talking about mercy. Talking about grace, talking about the love of God. God who saved us and called us, kaleo is the word. It means to call or to invite by name. God who saved us and called us with a holy calling. It's the effectual call. We spoke about it the last time I was in the pulpit here in this chapter a couple weeks ago. For the elect of God to be invited, to be called and respond to a gracious invitation of salvation. And that calling is a calling with a, with a holy calling. It's a, a call that's going to result in holiness. And uh, it, uh, the theologians would say both imputed and imparted. 
Holiness imputed means that those who respond to the effectual call of God are justified. They're declared not guilty, uh, not uh, guilty and treated as absolutely righteous, not by anything that they have done, but only because of the work of the redemptive work of the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then holiness imparted just refers to the process of sanctification, the walk of holiness, that we are even every day being more and more uh, shaped into the image of Christ and more and more we're being separated from the habitual practice of sin on a daily aspect in our life. God who saved us and called us according to his holy calling. And then he says, not according to our works. Again, we understand that salvation is by grace alone. Right? Not according to works, by grace alone, through faith alone. Again, apart from anything that we do. God saved us and called us to the holy calling, not according to his works, but, or our works, but according to his own purpose. Again, salvation is not based on the effort of men, but on the sovereign purposes of God. The same word there, uh, uh, according to his purpose in uh, in uh, 2 Timothy 1.9 here is the same uh, word purpose in uh, Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There's a purpose. God has a plan. God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, according to his own purpose. And then he says, and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus. So here is the reason that salvation is possible for men because God has granted grace. God has granted grace to men, complete, total, unmerited favor. We by birth are rebels. We by birth are, are aliens, strangers. We by birth are children of wrath. We're sons of disobedience. But God has granted us his grace, his free, unmerited favor. God could have treated us with justice and damned every one of us to hell for our sin. That would have been fair, but God doesn't do that. God grants us grace. And God's grace includes both attitudes and actions. Attitudes and actions of love, mercy, kindness, compassion. Again, undeserved favor for people such as us. And of course, the fullest revelation of God's divine grace is the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon Calvary's cross. God saved us, called us, not according to our works, according to his own purpose, and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the issue, right? His substitution, his sacrifice for the sins of God's people, God's elect. So it's the person of Jesus Christ that makes God's eternal plan of salvation possible in time. It's the person of Jesus Christ by his willing obedience to the Father to leave heaven, to come to earth, to take on flesh, to be born a man, to never sin to bear in his body the sins of everyone who would ever believe as, again, the vicarious uh, sufferer or our sin bearer. He who knew no sin. God's going to treat him as though he committed the sins of every man who would ever uh, believe upon him for salvation. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. That's tremendous. I mean, right to there, but it's going to get even more interesting. When did he do that? When did God do all this for us? God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus. Here it is, pro chronos ionis, from all eternity. From all eternity. It's literally before time began. The NIV says before the beginning of time. So when did God save us and call us according to his purpose, according to the grace that he granted us in Christ Jesus? Answer, from before the beginning. From all eternity. Which means this, it means that God's, the destiny of God's people, the destiny of God's chosen, his elect, was determined and sealed before time began. 
before Genesis 1-1, which says, in the beginning, God created. So God is God. He's in charge. No one else is. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has a plan for our good and for his glory. And again, it's an eternal, eternally, a a plan that is eternal in nature. In eternity past, God decreed, he decided, he planned, purposed, however you want to say it. A way of salvation for men, for their good and for his glory. And then for the exaltation and the glory of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God is a God of love. And by his very nature, God's own love, the very center of God's own love, is his dear son, the person of Jesus Christ. I love John 3.16. For God so loved the world, right? Well, as much as God loves the world, he loves somebody much more than he loves the world. He loves his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God so loved the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 2.9 says that he has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every knee, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God so loved Jesus Christ. So again, this eternal plan, this God who's a loving God, has an eternal plan for the salvation of men. It's centered in his glory through the person of Jesus Christ. It's for the good of the elect whom he chose before the foundation of the world. You okay so far? We'll keep going. It's going to get a little deeper. Turn over to Titus chapter 1. Verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those elect us. Chosen. For the faith of those chosen of God, meaning picked out, chosen by God, to obtain again salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the Christian. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Literally before time began. Before the ages began, it says in the ESV. Before the world began. Now, this verse here, these verses here kind of give to us the three aspects, three dimensions, if you will, of salvation. Justification, sanctification, glorification, they all go together. For the faith of those chosen of God speaks of justification. right? The fact that we're saved from the penalty of sin. And the knowledge of the truth, which is in according to godliness, speaks of sanctification, the fact that we are being saved from the power of sin. And the hope of eternal life obviously speaks about glorification, which we won't one day be freed from the very presence of sin. So the whole plan, the whole miracle of salvation, the hope of eternal life is promised by God who cannot lie, covers all dimensions of salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification. So again, when did he promise this plan? The text says, long ages ago. Right? Again, pro chronos ionis. It's the same thing we just read back over in First uh, Timothy 1.9. Literally before time's eternal. Before time began. So when did time begin? Answer, day one. Right? Day one of creation. When God separated the light from the dark, he began this cycle of light and dark phases. The world started spinning, so time began on day one. 
So the question then becomes, to whom did God make this eternal promise of salvation before time began, before day one? To answer that question, you have to ask the question, who is there before day one? Who is there before time? Men? No. Because the Bible says they were created in time, after day one. Angels? No, they're not eternal. They, too, were created in time. And God certainly would not make a promise to them of salvation because we know that the Bible says that angels are not the objects of salvation, only uh, redeemed men. So to whom did God make this promise of salvation? Well, the answer is found in who's left. Who's the only one left? God. Right? God's the only one left. So this promise of salvation, this plan of salvation, this promise of the church, really, is an intertarian promise. It's been made between the members of the Godhead. It's a plan between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's kind of wild. It's out there a little bit. I understand that, but it's biblically supported, and I'll show you that in just a moment. So when we come to this issue of understanding salvation from a biblical standpoint, I mean, we really indeed are on holy ground. We're really about to step into the holy eternal counsels of the Godhead. We're looking into the deep interpersonal communications of the, the members of the Godhead themselves. We're getting a, a view here of the plan, the plan of God, the mind of the Godhead, but again, before the creation of the world. A plan that they have promised to themselves because we're not there. Right? Uh, you must be born again. Right? What, what contribution do you make to your birth, your natural birth? Answer, none, because you weren't there before you were born. What contribution do you make to your eternal uh, birth, your second birth? None. This whole plan took place long before you and I ever showed up. This is an intertrinitarian plan before the creation of the world that God and the Godhead promised to themselves, that they would create a mankind, that they would redeem mankind and save them from their sin, and they would call or elect men unto salvation. Now, of course, this is not my unique discovery. There's been a lot of godly men before me who've discovered what the Scripture has to say, this eternal plan, the way I've just laid it out for you, the divine plan between the members of the Godhead. And one of them that popped into my mind immediately was this guy named Paul. For example, Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Right? In love, he predestined us, etc. Just as he chose us, right? The word chose there in Ephesians 1, 4 is in the reflexive. That just means he picked for himself. God chose for his own sake, for himself, all who are saved. Again, before any of us were ever created, before any of us were ever born, before the world was made, he already chose for himself. Now, I'm going to give you the big picture, going to give you a big flyover, and, and, and then we'll go into the details. And a lot of different men have written uh, on this that I'm about to unfold for you, but I think John MacArthur probably does the best job to concisely uh, lay it out. So this is what he says, and we'll go into the scripture, and I'll show it to you. This is what MacArthur says. There was a moment in eternity where the Father determined to express his infinite and perfect love to the Son, and we can understand that there's an intertrinitarian love, the likes of which is incomprehensible and inscrutable to us, but we know this about love it gives, right? And at some eternal moment, the Father desired to express his perfect love for the Son, and the way he determined to express that was to give the Son a redeemed humanity as a love gift. 
a redeemed humanity whose purpose would be forever and ever throughout all the eons of eternity to praise and glorify the Son and serve him perfectly. That was the Father's love gift. And to express his love, he wanted to give a redeemed humanity. He says evidently the angels wouldn't suffice to be in heaven praising the Son because there were characteristics of the Son for which they could never praise him. Because they had never fallen and they had never been redeemed. And because it's the nature of God to be gracious, he must manifest that grace and be exalted for it forever and ever and ever. He wanted to give a love gift to the Son, and so he predetermined to do that. Not only did he predetermine to do it, but he predetermined who would make up that redeemed humanity. He wrote their names down in the book of life before the world began. And he said, this is the love gift I want to give you, and they will forever and ever and ever praise and glorify your name. So did you get that? God loves the Son. And in order to express that love for the Son, the Father decided that in eternity past, he'd give the Son a gift, a bride, a redeemed humanity, a group of men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, people who've been saved from their sin, people who've been forever forgiven, people who've been forever forgiven and who forever, forever will love and praise Christ, his Son, for his mercy, for his goodness, And they'll worship him for his selfless sacrifice on Calvary's cross. So God set out to create the universe and the world. He created man. The fall happens. The eternal plan takes off in time to give to his son a redeemed humanity, a bride who will love the son forever and ever. That's the plan. That's the big picture. The problem is, however, and I've said this a number of times, we tend to be so self-centered, so self-focused, We believe that God's plan of salvation is primarily about God saving us. Right? It's all about God saving us. Now, we're part of it. Obviously, we're the beneficiaries, but it's not about us. The goal of redemption, the goal of the church, the the goal of God's election is to give his son a bride that will forever and ever praise and honor and worship him. And again, I'll back it up here just in a moment. And again, not only did God do this, but he determined again before the foundation of the world who would make up that redeemed humanity. 1 Timothy 1.9 again, God who saved us and called us from all eternity. Titus 1, Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus for the faith of those chosen. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he, verse 4, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So before time began, God has a plan. And before time began, God determined who would make up the, the part of that plan, who would make up that redeemed humanity, that to bride for his son, who would be a gift of his love, who would forever and ever praise the son. Those whose names were written down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, as it says in Revelation 13.8 and then Revelation 17.8. And when you stop and open the book of the Revelation and you see what's going to happen, 
what is happening, what will happen in the future, it's the worship of the Lamb. It's the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation 5.12. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and riches and power and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and amen and amen and amen and amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. That's what's going to go on for all eternity. The Lamb of God is praised because of his sacrifice of redemption. He's the issue. He's the issue. And again, because the Father loves the Son, he's determined to give the Son a redeemed humanity that would again forever and ever and ever praise him and worship him. Which means when it comes to the issue of salvation, men are beneficiaries of God's salvation. That's obvious. But we are not the main issue in salvation. Jesus Christ is. We're not the main issue in salvation, Jesus Christ is. One theologian says it like this, salvation is primarily for the honor of the Son, not the honor of the sinner. Salvation is primarily for the honor of the Son, not the honor of the sinner. The fact that we do get saved, the fact that we do get to spend the uh, uh, eternity, eternal life, because our sins have been paid for, is obviously a glorious byproduct, so to speak. I mean, we're beneficiaries of God's great grace, but we're not the issue. God is. Jesus Christ is. So again, the purpose of God working out an eternal plan of salvation is not for the sinner to be preeminently the issue, but for his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the preeminent issue. For the Lord Jesus Christ to be the object of all men's affections. The purpose of our salvation, the purpose of the plan of God in our salvation for the salvation of men is so that men can praise the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, I'm going to back it up. I'm going to show you. Turn back to John 6. John 6, verse 37. John 6, 37. The Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. He says, all the Father gives me. There it is right there. Right? All the Father gives me. There's the gift from the Father to the Son. Will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. All that he has given me I lose nothing. That's called eternal security. But I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So again, the Father says to the Son, I want to give you a redeemed humanity that will praise you and honor you and worship you and adore you throughout time and eternity. They're going to praise you and love you because you are the one who's going to secure their salvation. You're going to step into time. You're going to put on flesh. You're going to become a man. And you're going to become the Lamb of God, the one slain for them to win their salvation as their substitute, to win their redemption And then forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, men are going to sing what? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Right? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Drop down to verse 44 of that text. No one, Jesus says, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And again, I'll raise him up on the last day. Right? That's irresistible grace. He's saying that all that are saved, they're going to come to Christ. 
They're going to be drawn by the Father to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who are drawn by the Father to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, are going to be received by the Son, and they're never going to be lost, they're never going to be cast out. That's called, again, eternal security. So the perfect love gift from the Father is embraced by the Son. So again, the Father saves us. He writes our names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And again, when did he do that? He did it before the beginning. He did it before the world began. All that God has chosen for himself were written down in that Lamb's Book of Life before the day, before day one. In time, the Father draws sinners to Christ. Sinners respond to the call of God and come to Christ as a gift of God's love. Again, there's going to be a redeemed humanity that are going to praise Christ throughout the remainder of time and again throughout all of eternity. Christ receives that gift, that redeemed humanity from the Father. He keeps them safe and he promises he's going to raise them up on the last day and none of them are going to be lost. Again, the doctrine of eternal security, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Christ says, look, all that the Father gives me, they're going to glory. They're going all the way to glory. Now, in order for Christ to pull this off, so to speak, for this to happen in time, he had to suffer. He has got to go to the cross. So for a time, he's got to be separated from the Father as he is being the sin barrier, as he's bearing the sin of the world. So to make sure that nothing happens to this precious gift of a redeemed humanity, as Christ is anticipating the cross, he places this gift, this redeemed humanity, in the care of his Father as he prepares to go to the cross. Turn over to chapter 17 of the book of John. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, John 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you have gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they they have uh, kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I give, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but for those whom you give, who have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been, I have been glorified in them. So again, God makes distinctions amongst men, right? In the world, those in the world, and those whom the Father has given to Christ out of the world. Those whom God has chosen by his electing love, those, again, who were chosen before the foundation of the world, and Christ is asking the Father, as he's anticipating the cross, to keep them safe. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to to be separated. I'm going to be the sin bearer. Keep them safe as I go off to the cross and pay the penalty for them and die. And then as I'm resurrected and ascend back into heaven, just keep them safe. Verse 11, the Lord kind of treats as if his departure has already occurred. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, 
the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you had given me. I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture would be fulfilled. So all believers are kept safe. They're all protected, eternally secure. They're held by Christ and then kept by the Father. Drop down to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. When Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascends into heaven, where is he going? Back to glory. I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Where is that? Glory. I want them to go to glory with me. Now again, this plan of salvation, if we look at it from a biblical standpoint, is way, way beyond us. The whole thing is bound up in the eternal counsel and plans and purposes of God. It's bound up really in the eternal love of the Father for the Son. And again, God the Father desires to show God the Son his love. He, and again, love gives, so he's determined, God has determined to create a world that man can live in in time so that God can carry out his eternal plan. Do you get that? That's why this world exists. And you as a Christian need to have a biblical worldview on that issue. Because the rest of the world certainly doesn't. There is absolutely nothing that mankind can do to this planet apart from the purpose, plan, and the will of God. Men will not do anything to destroy this planet until God himself is through with it. Because this planet relates to God's eternal plans and purposes to glorify his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you would expect that the prince of the power of the air, who is a liar and all he does is speak lies, would have everybody in the planet trying to save the planet that is in not any peril whatsoever, when the reality is men ought to be concerned about the condition of their soul, not the condition of the grass. Right? Nothing is going to happen to this world until God is through. Because God has an eternal plan that he's worked out in time, and he's created this world for this, for this purpose, for this eternal plan to be carried out, and the redemption of mankind, and the salvation of men, and then the eternal exaltation of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, God created a world in which men can live so that God could carry out that eternal plan to put on display, to put on the demonstration of his supreme love for his son, uh, for his son that again he may create a redeemed human uh, humanity and then bring them all the way to glory. And there's more. Now go back to Romans 8. Make sure you're there. There's even more. Verse 29, but I'll start in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. That means that those who he loved beforehand, he also predestined. He marked them out. He appointed them. He determined beforehand. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And here it is, to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he, Jesus Christ, would be the firstborn, or really the preeminent one among, among many brethren. God so loves his son 
that those whom he marked out for salvation before the world began, according to that eternal plan, God so loves the Son, he predestined that elect to look like his Son. He predestined that elect to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, what's that? When's that going to happen? When are we going to be like Christ? When are we going to be like God's Son? 1 John 3 and 2, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared yet as what we, what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is, right? When he appears, when he comes back, when he's glorified. I want them to go with me to glory. God says, I, so, I, I love you so much, I'm going to let you, they're, they're going to go there, right? I, I love you so much, I'm going to take this group of called out elect they're going to be conformed to your image. They're going to look like you. So again, God's plan of salvation for us is not just to save us from sin and time. God's plan of salvation, God's elective purposes for men, is again to make sure we make it to glory, but that we might look like his son in time, conformed to his image, and then in perfection, looking like his son in glory. So those who love God, those who are called according to his purposes, it says in verse 28 there, are headed for glory. No one's going to uh, slip through the cracks, fall through the cracks. No one uh, whom God calls is going to be lost and not make it to glory. There's no absolutely no possibility of the evil one picking us off, as it were, uh, along the way. There's no possibility of the evil one diverting God's plan or purposes. He can't do that because Christ cares for us and the Father is caring for us. And the promise is that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. You say, well, that's really good, but what does it have to do with our text? The answer is absolutely everything. That was just the background to look at the text. So we have a reason for our confidence. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. These whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. It's a done deal in the eternal plan, eternal mind of God. How do we know that all things work together for good? How, what, where is the certainty? It's those first three words, right? And we know. The extent. How, how much? God causes all things to work together for good. Who, who are the recipients of this promise? Those who love God and those who are called. And now we know the reason why we can have such great confidence in the word of God, the truth of God, the promises of God, in his eternal plan, his eternal security for those who belong to him, because now we know his plan. He has an eternal plan. And we just happen to be, by God's grace, caught up in the eternal plans and the purposes of God. Again, these plans that were brought forth in the mind of God before the beginning of time. And it's that plan that we're part of that will glorify God, glorify Christ, Make God, make Christ preeminent. We are absolutely secondary. And that eternal plan that we're part of is based on the eternal, incomprehensible love that God the Father has for God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, it's a plan to bring to Christ a redeemed humanity that will love him forever, worship him forever, serve him forever. That's why we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who call 
those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, because God's purpose is greater than us. And he can and he does care for us. And again, we'll never be lost. But God's plan is greater than us. It's for his glory and it's for the glory of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, so much of modern evangel- uh, 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 evangelicalism is so man-centered. It gives, again, the, impre- the impression that salvation is all about some decision we make or us, quote-unquote, accepting Jesus. But the Bible teaches that salvation is primarily about the glory of God and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that salvation, again, is primarily about the honor of the Son, not the honor of the sinner. And the Bible teaches that we're Christians not because of what we decided, but we're Christians because of what God decided about us before the foundation of the world. Therefore, we know that whatever might come our way in time in this life, we know that God has an eternal plan for our good, for his glory, for the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can be confident to face life and whatever life might throw our direction as we trust the character the nature of our God, knowing that nothing can ever frustrate his plans because no one's stronger than he is. Therefore, we know that our salvation is ultimately an eternal plan for our good, for his glory, that he might display his goodness and his mercy so that he might make Christ the object of our affection. How do you know that your salvation is secure? It's nothing you've done, nothing I've done. It's everything that God and Christ have done. And as a result, we should never fail to what? Thank God. Was it Psalm 32, Psalm 34? I can't remember. His praise shall what? Continually be in my mouth. What in the world? Why would we ever use this mouth to do anything except praise God? And I'm speaking to myself, right? When the salvation that we have is that great. Never forgetting the fact that God is God. He's in control, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time things which have not been done, saying what? My purpose will be establish and I will accomplish my good pleasure and he is God he's called us and he called us according to his purpose from all eternity therefore we love him because he has first loved us our father and our God we're so thankful for the opportunity we've had to look at this last little aspect of this most wonderful verse is Romans eight twenty eight. what a great gem that you have left for us it's nothing to say except to thank you and to praise you for allowing us to be recipients of your grace through, because of your magnanimous love and through your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to live in a manner worthy of our calling and always with our lips praising you, being thankful for all that you've done for us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.